What's happening, everybody? And welcome to the 200th episode of the Crash Bang Boom podcast. Holy shit, I made it. And who better for today's guest than Hayden Menzies of Toronto-based noise rock trio Mets? Hayden and I get into the new record entitled Atlas Vending, due out a few days on October 9th. Working with Seth Manchester at Machines with Magnets on it, his present setup, the parallels and differences between his visual art versus musical pursuits, and we get into a good old talk about David Yao's Wang, which was very unexpected, I must say. Speaking of all this new record talk, shout out to my sponsor, New Orleans Record Press. If you're looking to put out vinyl for your project, go on over to NewOrleansRecordPress.com to check out the many coloring, packaging, mastering options, and you can add it all up in that real-time quote generator right over there. Need assistance with design or packaging? They can help you, and they print both 12 and 7-inch records in both 150 and 180 gram variants, and they print small runs of 100 and larger runs up into the thousands. And that's NewOrleansRecordPress.com, y'all. Crash Bang Boom Podcast can be found on iTunes Podcast, my SoundCloud, YouTube pages, Stitcher, Luminary, Google Play, Podbean, and more. Basically everywhere other than Spotify, which might be changing soon. So if you like getting them there, maybe you'll be getting it there soon. If you like what you hear, feel free to check out any of the previous 200 episodes and give me a like, a subscription, a positive rating, and or a glowing review. Or shit all of it. Go for it. The support is appreciated. As always, keep tabs on your favorite musicians who at this present time might be teaching lessons, giving classes, tutorials, and more, as well as bands live streaming their shows during this downtime of touring. And help out any way you can with websites like SaveOurStages.com where we're looking to bail out the music venues so we can actually have some shows when we step back out of this shit show. Gotta keep it happening somehow. All right? 200 in the bag. Hayden Menzies. Mets. Atlas Vending. Coming out in a few days. So get up on it. Crash, bang, boom. Crowds go mad with joy. Yep, 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 Hayden Menzies of the one and only Mets. What is happening, man? How are you making out these days? I'm doing all right, uh, all things considered. I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know, enjoying the little bubble that is my home for the moment. I mean, that, I guess that's the best we can do at the moment. I know, right? What have you uh, been doing with your spare time, man, in, in lieu of, of touring? I know, obviously, y'all have a new album coming out in Atlas Vending, and we can get into that. I was just, I guess, curious what you've been doing in uh, the last few months, really. I'm trying to stay sane is step one, I guess. It's been a, <laughs> yeah. it, has been, it has been kind of a practice in sort of self-management if, uh, yeah. or self-care to some degree. You know, I think there, this can be a really... I mean, I'll, I'll preface this all now so I don't have to keep giving this disclaimer, but any time I describe that things are hunky-dory with me, it does not mean that I am uh, oblivious to the amount of suffering and pain and anxiety and fear and anxiety that's going on in the world all over the place. Sure. But if I can, you know, selfishly, just for the purposes of describing my own little little world uh, that I'm doing the best to, to curate positively. Yeah. Things in that, on that front are all right, um, but like I was saying, it is a bit of a practice to kind of either use this time to identify and work on things about yourself and whether that's just going easy on yourself and indulging in hobbies and stuff, 
or whether it's, you know, doing some mental spring cleaning and, and trying to figure out what is, you know, changing, not, not changing priorities, but just thinking stuff through, you know, facing some stuff that maybe gets put on the back burner when the, the rat race of real life is kind of breathing down your neck at all times. So yeah. as much as I miss touring, you know, at the beginning, it was sort of this, a breath of fresh air in terms of just like everyone just fucking stop for a minute. Right. You know, like everyone just check in with yourself, hold on until we make sure that we are doing the right things to protect as many people as possible and, and ourselves and all that kind of stuff. So that's a long winded first question, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're doing lots of tour, not tour, but sort of like, you know, record planning stuff. And we're obviously, just waiting until we can pull the trigger on some stuff that's uh, that's actually feasible and responsible, and and uh, so you know we're being open to what possibilities might be available to us, but it's it's pretty weird waters to navigate at the moment. Absolutely, man. Well, speaking of Mets and, and record planning and whatnot, uh, have have y'all been able to practice uh, at all during the last few months, or you know since I would say March or so? And uh, given that Atlas Vending is uh, coming out October 9th, by the way, uh, I'm assuming y'all were able to track everything prior to all of this starting. Yeah, everything was recorded last November, which is crazy because we actually we took a little longer to do this one than we, we had with previous ones with just sort of taking longer to, to write it and just being off the road and just kind of enjoying, I try not to slow the pace down a little bit because we had gotten into the, the habit of, you know, the two year cycles, like write, record, tour the shit out of it, mm-hmm. come home, rest for a couple of months and then start all over again. And so for, for this last one, it was like, let's just pump the brakes. Like, you know, we still want to keep working. We still want to, you know, we still love it. We still love each other, but it's just like, let's just take a breather. And then when, when we were trying to figure out when it was best to actually release it, originally it was supposed to, I think it was slotted for like May. And that like, just with, with personal decisions in the band too, it was just like, let's not, I don't know, let's not push it. Let's not rush it. So, I mean, there's no opportune or ideal time during all this for, for stuff to come out. But um, yeah. I guess in the grand scheme of things, it could have been worse. It could have come out right in March or May in the middle of stuff. But right. So, for the longest time, we hadn't, you know, we were keeping in touch with each other and stuff, but everyone was, was quarantined. And we we eventually started practicing a few weeks ago when it was safe to do so with, like, precautions, like masks. And I have, like, a whole, you know, distance. And I have this whole, like, drop sheet of plastic in front of my drums. Oh, and my just, God. Like, I just, I, I would rather look a little silly and go be over indulgent than to sound hypocritical later when it's like, man, why can't we get back on the road? Cause this thing just keeps going, but we're, you know, bending the rules, uh, you know, to our convenience. So, yeah. you know, so we've all been, we've all been real diligent with it and, and try to, you know, do, do as best we can within, within, uh, guidelines and shit. Right, right. Well, I'm glad that y'all are putting it out. I know that there's some other bands that have been putting it out. I've spoken about it previously on the pod, on other previous podcasts, but uh, I think there's kind of an industry I, uh, uh, concept around um, releasing stuff. And I, I, a lot of what I've been hearing is kind of people saying that they're just going to wait. But I think it's also a great time. Uh, maybe there are fewer people putting it out. And also, I think 
people need to hear it and want to hear new music. And uh, going back to what you were saying about trying to stay positive uh, uh, through the whole thing and, and be productive and channel it in, in positive ways, I think that that's definitely worth uh, worth mentioning because you don't want to get so uh, you know overwhelmed with all of the woes of the world to the extent that, that you then become sort of less creative and then your art suffers for that. Because I think, once again, I think the world needs it at this time. For sure, yeah. I'm glad that you said that and that, again, y'all are putting it out at this time. So uh, that's awesome. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. We've been, uh, we're pretty stoked on this one, yeah. Nice, man. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, track and mixing. And uh, again, uh, you spoke a little bit about kind of, you know, the process of releasing it at the, the bar- bizarre time we find ourselves in. But um, one, uh, I know previously y'all worked with, uh, is it Graham Walsh uh, in mixing your previous records? Did he mix this one? No, we uh, we kind of we love Graham uh, dearly. We we've uh, we always work with him on on something to some capacity. So it's clearly not a, any decision on you know parting ways or anything. It was just like we had done it the same way for a few records, and we kind of wanted to change it up. The last one, I mean, there was like a rarities one that came out last year, which didn't require us to tour a ton, so that sort of bought us some time while we were still getting outstanding ready. Yeah. Albini did the one before, but he didn't mix it. I think we... Right. I can't remember I can't remember who mixed that, to be honest. Uh, it might have been Graham. I believe it was Graham. <laughs> yeah, no, you're probably right. Yeah. And then for... So for this one, we, we kind of wanted to throw everything on its head and, and try and just track it and record it and mix it differently. So we actually went to Providence, Rhode Island, or Pawtucket, mm-hmm. more specifically, to... A uh, studio called Machines with Magnets. Nice. And uh, this guy, uh, Seth Manchester, uh, who's one of the people who runs that place, and, and he engineered and mixed uh, the whole thing. Nice. We had a good friend, Ben Greenberg, who plays in the band Uniform, mm-hmm. come down and, and uh, co-produce with us. So we we all lived, with the exception of Seth, because he would go to his actual home, but the rest of us, Ben and the three of us in the band, we actually stayed and lived in the studio. There's like a basically an apartment at the back of the studio. So we all lived under one roof for two weeks. Wow. And it was really fun. I bet. Sometimes there's this, there's this webbing sort of looming over top of you of like, okay, we've got to get this done. And I find it it, it can be a little distracting to, it seems like a luxury at first to record locally where you can go sleep in your own bed at, at night. And then sometimes I think it's like it, 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 it's sort of this stop and start halt in a trajectory that kind of gets disrupted sometimes. Yep. But, you know, all, every situation is different. But for this one, it seemed to, to work really well. And it just everyone had a great time. Things flowed, you know, really easily. And we approached tracking and uh, just the overall sound a little bit differently. And it seemed to just gel. Even now, just thinking about it, like, you know, the, the three of us will chat sometimes or you know we're doing a bunch of press for the record and and stuff right now and every time someone talks about the making of this record it's this really everyone kind of gets like not nostalgic it's not old enough to be nostalgic but it's just like man that was a good fucking time like everyone has positive things to say about this one so nice yeah it was uh not that any other ones were difficult it's just this just checked all the boxes you know everyone was having a good time and and just seemed really productive and constructive and it was yeah, it was a good good time. Yeah, man. You mentioned Seth Manchester and obviously Machines with Magnets. Uh, I'm familiar with that, with him and his studio out there because I spoke to John Syverson of Daughters and they did their record, You Won't Get What You Want, out there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Really crazy sounding record uh, as well. Oh yeah. Uh, when tracking it, were y'all able to track anything live with all three of you, or was it the usual? You know, get scratch guitar, bass, and then you track drums, and then everything's layered from there. Was that the the general approach? We we all played live and tracked live, but we kind of gave ourselves a bit of a safety net where um, guitar and bass would be sort of isolated. Um, like the, the amps would be isolated, but we would all be in the same room or at least be able to see each other through some sort of window. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were all playing at the same time. So if everyone got a killer take, then that's a true lab take. And we would, you know, we would do some overdubs on top of that or, you know, yeah. you know change some sort of stuff. But if everyone nailed it, then that counted as a take and we just kept it. Um, but the luxury is like, you know, if I had a good one and Chris was like, yeah, I'm not feeling that one. I want to do it again. If I was stoked on the one I had, we didn't have to start all over again. Absolutely. But, but it, it, yeah, kind of kind of the best of both worlds. It was uh, it was similar how, to how we did it with Albini, but this just the the room in Machines and Legs, it's just, it just sounds amazing. It's not gigantic, but it just it sounds incredible. I don't know what it is about the construction or the you know just the vibe in that room, but it, the drums sound great. Everything sounds awesome. Yeah, man. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, Steve Albini. Uh, tell me a little bit about, I guess, working with him and then maybe just your experience of recording uh, in those rooms, because uh, I've spoken to uh, Dave Turncrantz. I believe he recorded the drums in one of the two rooms at uh, at Steve Albini's place for that last record that they put out. And that, that record sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about, I guess, just uh, recording with Steve Albini and maybe what was different about working on a 2017 Strange Piece it was great to work with Steve Albini. That was kind of a, you know, kind of a bucket list thing for a lot of bands. And we, we had a great time doing it. We were similar in the way that we stayed there for about five days, but we, we tracked, we tracked drums, bit of bass and guitar, some of which we redid. We essentially came home with like with drums and some of the other stuff. And, and then we, redid some stuff, uh, remixed some other shit and then layered and then did vocals and then, so, um, but yeah, super pleasant guy to be around. He knows his shit, obviously, inside and out. He'll give advice when asked, but he's, you know, he's not there to, he's not a huge cheerleader. I don't think he deserves the sort of curmudgeonly reputation that he sometimes gets because <laughs> he was very friendly with us and, and, and encouraging and supportive. And she's just like, yeah, I want to document this as best as you guys do. Play your songs well and we'll fucking nail it and we'll make sure you guys are happy. So, yeah. Yeah, it was great. And that room sounds amazing, too. Like, we actually used the drums we put in Studio A. We put them in the big, big room where all the pianos and stuff are. So right. um, just to get this huge, bouncy, you know, leaning pretty heavy on some of the ambient mics and stuff placed yes, around the room. And we and that was great. I love it for that record. But I think that's one of the things we not that specific drum sound, but in general, we wanted to do things differently on this record where things are a little more, a little more direct. There's a little, you know, mm-hmm. we should, I don't know how to describe it other than like, we constantly chose to sort of um, remove a bit of this like audio gauze that you, that we might have on, on some other records with some songs where it's, it, it you don't get ear fatigue as much. Like it's, uh-huh. you know, it's a little easier to listen to this in some ways because the highs are higher, the, the, the lows are lower and things are a little more direct. So you can, it just, you know, just messes a little more instead of having to like just teeter on redlining to, to try and 
balance instruments and frequencies and stuff like that, which can become difficult when you're dealing with a mic that's 20 feet away and totally. you've got a 20, 24 inch ride symbol that is just <laughs> cutting everything out. And so you just, you know, it's this constant push and pull to try and make sure that all the instruments are balanced enough that the dynamics of the songs are actually coming through instead of just this sausage of a wave files. Totally. So in that regard, doing, I think that's one of the bigger achievements that we feel really proud of, of on this one is it, it, we didn't demand so much of that. They still sound like real drums and real live instruments in a room, but let's allow them to breathe and allow them to be big when they're supposed to be big instead of like, you know, instead of sort of putting them under this woolly, you know, distant aesthetic sort of thing. Right, right, right. Well, when uh, Mets first started out, uh, were there any particular, uh, you know, I kind of associate y'all, I guess, with sort of noise rock-esque subgenre. Were there any particular bands uh, leading into that when y'all formed that were being thrown around? I mean, in the case of Mets, I always hear a little bit of Drive Like Jehu in there uh, and a little bit of that frenetic punk rock energy that y'all have, whereas maybe like someone like Young Widows, who I also dig and who I'd also kind of put a little bit in that that world, uh, you know, I think they maybe have more of like a sort of psych goth Jesus lizard thing more recently at least that's the way i describe yeah, it yeah. but uh oh yeah yeah what were there any particular influences going into this that uh that that y'all all shared or that were thrown out there like this could be a direction for the band necessarily it was never really discussed in terms of like hey let's see if you know what are you into it wasn't like auditioning people's taste so to speak but sure. uh, but i know what you're getting at and it was there's i think some of it just didn't even need to be said because it was pretty obvious we all came from a pretty pretty similar um, background in music, which is, you know, a lot of uh, Discord stuff. And sure. uh, like the first show I ever went to when I was like 13 or 14 was Hoover in, in Ottawa when I was going to high school there. And it was, I'm still a massive fan of that band to this day. Yeah, We've toured with Young Widows a bunch. Um, we've played with Travis J who were like meeting our heroes. But yeah, those are all big influences, like things like Unwound, mm-hmm. um, yeah. bands, um a lot of touch and go stuff, right? You know, DeSoto records, things like that. It was, it's all over the map. But I think we we all have really diverse tastes. Like I don't really listen to loud, heavy music when I'm at home very uh-huh. much at all. So I think, again, this wasn't ever really declared when we would first get together to write songs. It was kind of like, what ideas can we throw at each other and see what kind of comes out of it? And if that's like, let's do like a Phil Spector beat on this chorus but it will sound totally demented like a you know revved up cramps because right. it's that it's that beat trying to be applied to something else and it's like that's not you know that's we're not reinventing the wheel or anything there was no idea that was just like no there's a rule book and that's what we're doing like that shit was at the door mm-hmm. you know we never abided by anything that was like no we're going for very pure aesthetic and in terms of this style of music that's what we want to do mm-hmm. i think naturally we all we all play a certain way so that kind of comes across whether we tried to or not, but sure. it's certainly not a, 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 de- a deliberate attempt to sort of emulate anything in particular. Right, right, right. Uh, you mentioned seeing Hoover and some of those early shows that, that were blowing your mind. I know I'd sometimes run through my own mind about as to, you know, like some of my favorite all-time shows, but what were some of those uh, that you saw early on that you still kind of marvel at having seen back in the day and uh, you would maybe list in some of your all-time favorite shows? Man. <laughs> That one definitely sticks out. Yeah, I, it's funny. I always talk to my um, to my brothers a lot about nostalgic type stuff. I have three brothers, and we all we all we're all still really tight, and we all 
grew up going to shows and, and there was a particular venue in Ottawa called five Arlington, which is just someone's street address. It was just a house. Mm. And that's where they put on a lot of these shows. So that's where I saw before I saw anything in like a big stadium or, or even like a decent sized venue. It was, this is where I saw like, you know, 90% of the, the shows I ever saw was at, at that place or houses and or community centers and stuff around Ottawa. Wow. There's like pre-alcohol memory, and then there's when alcohol <laughs> was introduced into my life where I'm not, my memory of is a little foggier these days. But uh-huh. yeah, I mean, like my first show ever, I can't overstate that one enough. It was incredible. Like Hoover, I forget who else was on the bill, but mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, there was a, a local band called uh, Union of Uranus who shared members of um, uh, like His Hero is Gone and Tragedy mm-hmm. and bands like Toronto bands like Brutal Lights and Hacksaw and things like that and Deadly Snakes. Cool. None come to mind immediately about like early, early shows other than that really poignant venue and a lot of bands that would play through there. Right. Um, but, you know, we've, we've, like I said, we've also been really very privileged in the way that we've gotten to play and hang out and get to know some of the bands that are like hero status to us, you know, playing right. and touring with like Hot Snakes and Drive Like Jehu. And yeah. it's incredible just to even be regarded. I don't even want this, to use this term because I would never want it to sound uh, over the line or, or pretentious, but to, to even be to even be referred to as a peer to some degree uh, to some of these musicians and artists that you grew up listening to is fucking mind boggling, but I'll take it. I mean, I'm telling you, yeah. Did you happen to see uh, Jesus Lizard uh, in the early 90s, by any chance? I didn't see them originally uh, with Mac McNeely. I think I saw him uh, after they put out Shot, I want to say. So at that point, they had the other drummer. And then I saw him more recently, thankfully, with Mac back in the band. I was just curious if you were able to uh, see them. Because uh, <laughs> speaking of extra time on the hands and some of the YouTube rabbit holes that I'll go down, I've been watching... Uh, early 90s stuff whether it's Alice in Chains off the first record or you know like early Jesus Lizard stuff and god there's just such incredible video out there uh, did you happen to see Jesus Lizard back in the day well I'll be completely forthcoming I never saw them but my oldest brother did it was a, it was a venue in Ottawa called Barrymore's mm-hmm. and but I used to tell this story for the longest time saying that I was there because <laughs> my brother he told me in, or he told all of us in such detail and I was like, well, I, I got this story now. I can pass this off. It was total horseshit. I was never there. That's but hilarious. David Yao, David Yao got, um, uh, he got arrested the night before whatever, whatever city they're at for indecent exposure for pulling out his wang or something. Yeah. So at this show, he just pulled out his nutsack. And <laughs> so he just was sort of like the happy medium, I guess. And that's, you know, I guess that was a logic. I don't know. Yeah. And then he ran ran through the crowd and pushed over like every single beer tap. So there was just beer flowing anywhere. And the poor bartenders were trying to run back and forth to try to turn them off. Oh um, my God. That's hilarious. But I would have loved to have seen them back then. Uh, Chris actually from, from Mets has a great story too. And when he, <laughs> when he saw them, David Yao singled them out and just started kissing them with tongue, uh, oh. just in the crowd, just, yeah, <laughs> just found them in the crowd and, he was probably the youngest kid there, and he just wanted to give him a night to remember. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I saw them again. Not again. Sorry. See, I'm, I'm so in tune with this lie I've been telling for so long. <laughs> I said I've seen them again. The yeah. first time I actually saw them was when they did the reunion 
it was probably like what like six years ago or something yep. like that. Yeah, I saw him as well. And I believe Mac McNeely was back. Yeah, he was at that point. Yeah, he and was. It was flawless. And from the first note, David Yao, they played uh, "I Can Swim," and That's he just right. just dove straight in. And yep. it, it was like they hadn't missed a beat. They hadn't, you know, I don't know when the last time they actually played together. Yeah, because it's easy for bands to get back together, break up or whatever. Any indefinite hiatus or any prolonged period of time, it's easy for people to kind of. People get protective about things they care about and, you know, the nostalgia behind them and things like that. And it's so easy for bands to ruin that legacy, even though it's not up to the people, it's up to the band. It's their decision to make. But, you know, there is that sort of that gut feeling is like, please don't let this be bad because I love this band. I want to, to maintain that. And fuck, they delivered. It was like they hadn't missed a beat. It was incredible. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, in, in, in splitting the difference of uh, David Yao's balls and penis, uh, it's amazing. I did not anticipate talking so much about this, but since you mentioned it, uh, I saw him once and he tucked everything uh, back there to where he looked like he had nothing. And then he was, mm-hmm. we had his mic uh, in his one hand and then his other hand down, like messing with something. I was like, what is he doing? And he like tucked his, his dick into his scrotum and just kind of let it turtle out. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> dude <laughs> so he he did he did the tuck and then the reveal and it was all uh very memorable but uh fucking ridiculous man i love it <laughs> fucking oh. hell <laughs> oh my god man Are there any uh, modern uh, sort of noise rock esque bands uh, that you dig? I'm not. I don't know if you're aware of them uh, or have heard of them or not. But uh, there's an awesome band called Bummer out of Kansas City that I saw, and I, I interviewed the drummer. And uh, that band is killer. If you haven't heard them, or if anybody listening to this is looking for other other bands out there that uh, that do that thing, they're killer. I was just oh shit yeah. What are they called? Bummer. Yeah, Bummer. They're from Kansas City. Check them out. I'll definitely check them out. Yeah, <laughs> badass. I know this is sort of that cliche thing when like you're people who play noisy, loud music. I'm like, yeah, I don't really listen to that. Right. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, the new uniform record is, is fucking great. Okay. Um, we're all big fans of that band Cherubs from yeah. Texas. Yeah, totally. I think it's from Austin. Yeah, they are. Yes. I mean, idols are good friends with us and it's right. so great to see them being, you know, getting all this attention uh, and spreading such like, you know, positive shit and love around the world. That's, I mean, I love seeing that. So we're extremely happy for them. Band from Ireland called Girl Band, who's doing, doing some really cool stuff. Okay. Well, I mean, I tell you what, are there any records that people might be surprised that you've been digging as of late? I know that I go through phases where I, I went through a phase where I was listening to tons of ELO. And I'm, I still, to this day, I, I just, because my dad listened to soft rock radio and had it on forever, all that music is super nostalgic. So whether I'm listening to like sure. Bread or, or any of those bands, uh, I, I totally, I, I love listening to soft rock. Are there any, are there any uh, records that you've been especially kind of digging uh, as of late that could be of any, any sort? Yeah. I mean, well, a surprising one is I've always been a big fan of that band Cake. 
Yeah. Uh, I've, I've just always been a fan. Um, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't listened to them recently, but, um, on the, on a similar sort of sort of nostalgic radio rock trip, um, I got into Bob Seger a ton at the beginning of this. Oh, I love Bob Seger. I love him. I was like, I, I was like, you know, I was a, it was the best of kind of period for me. I would, I would throw one on and my girlfriend would just like, cause it would, it would be the best part of my day. I'd start cooking dinner and put on, put on the record. Yeah. And she just had enough. She was like, you got to choose something else, man. <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of that sort of like outlaw country, like Waylon Jennings and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Love that kind of stuff. Um, even if we're like, you know, if we're cooking and making pasta from scratch, there's like dough and flour everywhere. We'll put on like Dean Martin and drink wine and pretend we're, you know, off in Tuscany or some shit, and it's just, right. you know, or in Vegas, yeah. and it's just, it's just fun. Um, there's one actually recently that a friend of mine, who's from Austin, he turned me onto this record called The Caretaker, hmm. um, and it's a project by. I should really do my homework before I bring these things up. I forget the dude's name, but it's a, it's a, it's like a musical project of his. This is just a, a pseudonym the caretaker but, but he's done like in you know solo electronic music and stuff for ages mm-hmm. it's this project that that deals with sort of memory and dementia and um sort of explores this this path of this journey so to speak of of people who are either elderly and might live in care centers or people who um may have mental challenges mm. and it's, so it's this it's it's weird because it goes from really, really happy and uh, you get this sort of, you know, something's in the background, you can't quite pinpoint it, but it just puts you in a better mood. Mm-hmm. And it goes from that and it, goes, you know, it has from, has old classic sort of vaudeville type tunes and it has this, the, the aesthetic of an of a old crackling, uh, you know, turntable where it's all yeah. dusty and the old really hard vinyl records and stuff. And, and it just, slowly it sort of deteriorates and some of the like there's one record i think it's got like 40 tracks on it. and by the end it's like it sounds like this that same song or very similar sounds are way down at the end of some hallway and you can barely ga- grasp what's going on wow. uh and so because it becomes really haunting but there's still an element of like you you, you feel this tension growing where you're trying to you don't want to admit that you can't quite make it out and stuff anyway i'm not trying to put words in in his mouth or anyone who you know, if I've missed the point completely, that, that may be the case. But because it is so long of a record and it's pretty vast, I actually haven't listened to the entire thing. But the parts that I have, it just, it's, a, it's a trip. Um, you know, it, it can make or break your day. So I'm not saying it's uh, <laughs> the best choice. You just, you know, read the room before you put it on. But, right, totally. Um, but it is interesting. It, it's pretty in, involved. I admire people who go the, the distance on, uh, on projects like that. Absolutely, man. So stage volume, I know you're a pretty hard hitting player. So oftentimes fellow bandmates match the volume of the drummer and overall stage volume can be pretty cranked. And I feel like part of your sound sounds like amps and and drums, you know, kind of cranked. And as I mentioned with Young Widows, they have had a pretty, uh, pretty loud stage volume. Um, So is that is that the case with Mets? Are y'all pretty cranked uh, stage wise and or has that changed throughout time? Well, if you described it pretty accurately with with uh, prefacing and all that, that's kind of the case. Is that the, the amps are trying to <laughs> rival drums and big and cymbals and stuff like that. And I, I, I'm not a feather touch player, but it's 
it's certainly not some sort of machismo shit. It's just yeah. the way the the excitement and sort of you know trying to emulate drummers that I would watch and be like, man, I I'd love seeing people sweat and just you know try and bash it out. But it also comes because I'm not. I have a ton of bad habits because I'm self-taught and I, you know, I've never taken lessons. So it probably yeah. takes other people two steps. It takes me about 10. So yeah. in order to keep up, there, there is sort of like I've built in this process of doing extra work, which you know, requires a lot of extra sort of effort. So it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's certainly not supposed to be showboaty or macho. It's just it's this enthusiasm and sort of, you know, I have to lay into it and get to get it all out there. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it, one of the, one of the side effects is that it affects stage volume. And that's even since day one, it's never been a desire to shove it down people's throats or to sort of be offensively loud. It's just because with, the, you know, especially when you first start playing, you're playing in a whole mix of venues, anywhere from, sure. you know, 20 people in a church basement to 800 people in a big venue. So you have to, you have to moderate that. And, I think it's always been a uh, an attempt, which I genuinely think we've achieved on this record as well, is like to have levels where there's louder seems louder when you when it's placed right next to something that's that's you know light and finessed and yeah. sort of um, you know a little more intricate. So we've attempted that in the past, and I think we've we've achieved it in in to certain degrees. But I think on this record, it's it's quite quite obvious like how the peaks and valleys are, are pretty substantial. And I think that's really exciting for us. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we will be able to sort of modify accordingly is, is just not being cranked all the time. Right. You mentioned uh, the kind of bombastic drummers. I'd say that you certainly have a, have a, have a good balance of bombast in your playing for sure. Uh, what are, what are some of the drummers that you feel as though maybe uh, there's a, there's a hint of some of their early influence in your playing still to this day? You know, I mean, some people kind of have their holy trinity of drummers. Some people have their magnificent seven. Sometimes they have a baker's dozen. Uh, <laughs> what is your, what are uh, some of your uh, top guys that you feel like maybe even uh, influence you still to this day? Definitely, people like Mac McNeely. We were talking about earlier. For sure, yeah. Um, uh, John Theodore oh, is. Yeah. I remember. I remember seeing clips and and uh, uh, stuff when he was still in, playing in Golden. Um, oh, yeah. Because he's got, you know, he kind of has the the whole the whole package. Yeah. Um, I actually really admire and envy drummers uh, like Nate Smith, who does a lot of uh, jazz type drumming, and he is just proficient as hell. And just like he, it, it seems like he can. He's one of those dudes who seems like he can play any style, day or night, like, and he'll nail it. And he's just he's such a chameleon. Yeah. You know, he can throw the weirdest sort of time signature with the classic grip with just like total tasteful finesse and could probably just lay out, um, you know, a Zeppelin track as well. Like he could just yeah. do it all. Yeah. Um, uh, drummers like uh, Carla Azar, I think I pronounced her last name right, mm-hmm. who plays in Autolux and does some like uh, Jack White projects and stuff. She's just got such a cool swing where it's like, it's, it's just, it's nestled. It's just like, it's the perfect uh, compliment to, and same in a similar in a similar tone, she it seems like she just lends the best version of herself to whatever is being asked for that musical thing, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff I, I admire the hell out of. I think that's uh, that something that 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 I would love to aspire to do more of as a as a drummer. But in younger days, yeah, you know, heavy hitters, sure, like fucking 
Mac McNeely, John Theodore, Dave Grohl, Dale Crover. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, all that, that, just that kind of, you see, you hear them play and it's like, man, that sounds awesome. It's probably hard as hell. And then you see them and then you actually see them play. And it's just like, yeah, I was right. They're, they're just fucking crushing it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> totally, man. You mentioned a 24-inch ride cymbal. What are you playing uh, size-wise for a crash, a 20 or a 22? 22-inch 20, crash, 24 ride, and 15-inch hi-hats. Nice, man. And you mentioned Nate Smith earlier, who's a fellow Ludwig guy. You're, you're a Ludwig guy, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, honorably so. Nice. I'm a fan, man. I have uh, an early 70s uh, Vistalite kit, and uh, it's a, a super unique drum set, and everyone that's ever heard me play it always loves it. You know, it's... And uh, it's a little, I've talked about it being a little bit temperamental and that's what's so great about these new drums and just how, how well they're designed. Uh, But uh, what is the kit that uh, I guess, like, for instance, the, the last record uh, Atlas Vending, did you record, did you use your own kit on that? Yeah, we drove down from Toronto. So we brought all our own stuff. Nice. So for that one, uh, I used the, the legacy maples, like a 26, 14, 18, mm-hmm. and Black Beauty, Black Beauty Snare, and uh, I think it's um, this is like a raw brass or something. It's like this. Nice. Anyway, it's another. That's another backup snare, and they they were both really cool. Awesome. And that kind of has the the Black Oyster Pearl, like sort of Ringo Star, yeah. like John Bonham sizes and Ringo Star wrap. And, there you go. Um, I actually just got my first set of Vista lights like a couple months ago. Nice. Um, which I've never had, and I'm totally in love with them they're just it's like three bands so it's like red clear red and it's same size as 26 14 18 wow the bottom sizes damn yeah i I it was not a conscious effort but one of my first kits was it was a pretty cheap like gretch kit or something like that it was like Mm -hmm. some of these reissues Mm -hmm. and i was like that's pretty cheap like from the store uh and those are the sizes and like i guess i'll just learn to adapt to those sizes and that i've just never gone back really i mean i played you know on tour you sort of if it's festival circuit and shit you you take what you get but yeah so i have no issue sometimes i actually prefer 24 because it's just a little easier to get that rack tom over top but you got it um but yeah uh that's what i like at home but i like i like to be pretty versatile years on the road it makes you realize that if you're too particular about some stuff and it breaks or you can't find it and you can't play without it you got to be able to play anything thrown your way so Absolutely. i like to try and be adaptable as best i can yeah wow how did you uh what led you to the kit in the first place you mentioned that you were self-taught um why why the drums and did you play or did you play an instrument prior to that or did you just start with the drums i kind of started well my i started with piano and and to this day um 40 40 years old and to this day one of my regrets is not sticking with piano because my mom taught and she was quite an accomplished player and she, and we had a piano in the house Wow! and she would give us free lessons when we come home from school. And, you know, she wasn't real strict about it. It's like, you got to practice. So it's not a waste of my time. But you yeah. know, if you want to do 15 minutes or you want to do an hour, it's up to you. Just, just stick with it. And you know, stubborn young teenager getting into punk rock. They're like, what the fuck is piano ever going to offer me? And it's the biggest, it's honestly, it's so short-sighted and stupid and <laughs> such a versatile instrument that can, you know, just expand everything you do on any instrument. Totally. I mean, the rhythm just being applied to drums alone is, is worthwhile. 
So I regretfully did not stick with that, but shortly after got, uh, I started getting into drums. I think it was just like I was tapping around on stuff, and my parents noticed, and they got me this this toy for Christmas I called Hit Sticks, and it was like it's kind of this weird little. It was these these plastic drum sticks that had like a telephone sort of looping cable that went from them into this little speaker that you'd clip onto your belt. Oh, wow. And you put like a double A battery on it and you just whack it in the air. You didn't even have to hit something. Mm. You flicked it hard enough, it would make a, you know, shitty digital snare sound. <laughs> right. It made the same it made the same sound regardless of what you hit and how you hit it. So it was just a whole bunch of snares, but the gesture was was the same. Yeah. And uh and then after that it was because one of my older brothers started playing guitar and it's like, well if we both play guitar, the odds of us being able to ever do a band together, something's probably pretty fruitless so i i uh eventually saved up and got my first set of set of drums and and started bashing away wow and did you say did your brothers i know you said you mentioned you had brothers and y'all were going to shows uh and stuff did your other brothers play any instruments at all did y'all did y'all jam at all or was it just you we all sort of dabbled but my myself um and one one of my older brothers uh we played in a band together for years actually toured uh, quite a bit and Went down the, you know, all through the states, and uh, so yeah, we we actually played shows for quite a few years. We put out like three records. I right know. And my other, yeah, my other brothers, like, they were competent. They could play, but they didn't do band stuff. It was just, you know, they did their own thing. Right. What was the name of the band that you had with your brother that you toured with? Uh, it was called Three Penny Opera, and okay, we we uh, at that time we were living in Ottawa. Um, my dad was in the military, so we moved out a ton. So Ottawa was just happened to be where we landed. Yeah. That was sort of like, you know, formative years of, of you know, late middle school into junior high and then high school and, and shit like that. So that's when things are being, you know, you, you, you sort of, you figure out what you're into and what you're not, you know? Right. And it wasn't sports, so it was going to be something else. mentioned going out on that tour uh, and touring the states and putting out those records and everything when Mets first started uh, it's one of the questions I like to ask bands uh, early on are there any particular uh, super ridiculous show that you recall or that y'all even joke about amongst yourselves today as being especially uh, just ridiculous or bizarre even I remember one of the worst shows we've ever played was in <laughs> London Ontario I think we were playing with uh, the band Obits mm -hmm. and uh, we did a string of shows with them and it was just one of those nights where just something wasn't clicking and we're just, you know, we had to stop a couple of songs or like, I counted one in weird and we went into different songs. It was just, <laughs> yeah. and you know, it, even just a week later we could laugh about it, but it was one of those ones. It was clearly bad enough that it still sticks in, in my memory now. <laughs> yeah. But thankfully we, I don't think we, we have too many where we, where it haunts you for a while. It's like, Oh, that was kind of cringeworthy. Right. 
There was one I remember in, in I think it was Quebec City, because the first few years, first couple of years at least, in Mets, I wasn't allowed in the, in the States. I got banned from the States for like a border thing, just oh. for a, a previous band going to play a show, a benefit show, uh, albeit. And they thought we, like we didn't work papers because it was a benefit show. And then last minute we kind of got cold feet and we're like, uh, yeah, we're not playing a show. And then we just got hauled in. And, and anyway, so everyone in the band, there was no sketchiness. There was no like, you know, there's no drugs or any, that kind of shit. It was yeah. just, they just didn't believe us. And they had uh, some people in training that night that they were kind of showing the ropes. And we were the only people that crossed that border all night, the entire night. Wow. So we got separated and, and sat in there for about six hours. And we just fessed up. It's like, yeah, look, we're just, we just do this on the weekends when we're not working part-time jobs, man. Like, and they just weren't having it. So we got banned for five years. Wow. So, yeah, so from, from 25 to age 30, I wasn't allowed in, in the States. And I think we started Mets around when I was like 27, 28. So for the first couple of years, we had to be pretty creative about it. And yeah. we toured Canada, which is difficult. Um, and eventually, like I had, you know, I had, had people write to congressmen on their, or congresspeople on, on, on my behalf. We had immigration lawyers looking into it, like nothing would work. So after the five years, pretty much to the day, had had come and gone, I was calling border offices and like, look, here's the deal. Am I allowed to, to cross now? Because I have a P1 visa that's been that's been not activated, but, you know, it's been granted. Yeah. We've, we've all gotten proper papers so we can do it properly this time. And they're just like, I don't know. I've never heard of anything like this. I'm like, fuck, all right. So we drove to Niagara Falls and the other two dudes stayed on the Canadian side. I took my passport uh, and walked uh, on the pedestrian bridge to the thing, to the border office. And just before I went up, I'm like, look, I'm not trying to cross. Because I've been told before, it's like, if you come near the border and try to cross, you can face jail time depending on what guard you get. You Jesus. know, this is like the ban is, is a serious thing. Right. So I was I was sweating bullets because I didn't want to jeopardize any more banned stuff, and I you know I didn't want to be banned for life or anything. So I walked up and the, so I explained it, and he was like, "All right, well, let me have a look." So he looked at the passport, and he was like, "No, you're good. Do you want me to activate the visa now?" And I was like, "Yes." So, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, so I was I was sweating it pretty hard for a while, but even then, after after that, for a couple of years, um, we always had to a lot of. of couple extra hours at any border because as soon as my passport would get swiped so this generic red flag would come up saying like this guy's got to go to secondary screening um but it didn't say why so it could have been anything from you know jaywalking to armed robbery so it was just like it you know eventually that disappeared so now i haven't had any problems right. i don't know how much of this i should be saying <laughs> i mean it's a, it's all water under the bridge it's like 10 totally. years ago but Still, I, I don't know. It's crazy. It's just like the border is still fucking terrifying. Even if, you know, we don't run, we're not into any sketchy shit. And I still, my palms get sweaty going to the border every fucking time. Damn, dude. The things you do for rock and roll. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, man, that's good stuff. Uh, well, I had a question for you as a visual artist who also obviously plays in music. Uh, are there any parallels between those two worlds? Obviously, you have one visual, one audible. Uh, are there parallels beyond it just being a creative outlet uh, that you've seen in doing this over time? Even if I can't come up with, with concrete 
explanations why, I think it would be more difficult to try and explain why they don't have parallels or why there aren't similarities. Yeah. So I, I, I definitely think there are any creative endeavor, but, but specifically talking about visual stuff, um, you know, th- because that's what you asked. Like, I think there's, everyone's got a process to mm-hmm. how they do their stuff. And I think there's a, there's a, it's a slippery slope to kind of, you, you, it's trial and error for a number of years until you formulate some sort of style or aesthetic or mm-hmm. some sort of, um, you know, some sort of niche of like, this feels my, this feels like my visual identity, whereas a band is sort of your sonic identity to some degree. Sure. Um, but on the other side of that can easily uh, sometimes become the slippery slope of falling into this really formulaic uh, clinical way of approaching it. Sure. Where you just do, you find something that kind of works and you, you stick within that template and you just do it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it until someone calls you out. And that can, you know, that can be a rude awakening. It's like, shit, yeah, I have been doing the same fucking thing for 10 years and, you know, yeah. drawing the same little cartoon or whatever. So I think in some ways you have to kind of push yourself to do things differently, even if at the risk of alienating people that might be fans of your stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, make mistakes, try stuff and fuck it up. Like, right. You know, I, I, so I think there's, um, I mean, that's not the most profound similarities. No, I think that's, that's an interesting distinction for sure though. And I mean, and one of the differences that, that still lend to that same parallel is that when it's art stuff, um, that I'm doing on my own, I don't need to consult anybody. So for, you know, for better or for worse, success or failure, that's my call. And that can be refreshing, mm-hmm. but I also completely miss the sort of collective camaraderie of making decisions as a band, whether it's for right. album art or whether it's for a poster or t-shirt design yeah. or a song. Right. Um, you know, so I, I think I kind of, I like having the balance of the two worlds and I love when they can commingle and overlap. Yeah. Um, but if they don't need to for them to be satisfying on their own. Gotcha. And by the way, I looked up uh, The Caretaker because I was curious as to how you described it. And it sounds like you're pretty much on it. It says it's this uh, Leland James Kirby, whose work under The Caretaker moniker has been characterized as exploring memory and the gradual deterioration of it, nostalgia and melancholia. So there you go. I'd say that that's that is what you described. Okay, good. I'm glad I didn't completely butcher that concept. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. It's good stuff. Well, Hayden, man, it was good talking to you, man. Uh, I look forward to uh, hopefully uh, catching you coming through the States at some point. Uh, post sweaty palms from your PTSD of crossing the border, of course. And uh, definitely <laughs> it's look all forward, good now. Yeah, definitely look forward to uh, hearing Atlas Vending now that I know where you recorded it and who you worked with and the process behind it. Uh, and the, the songs that I've heard thus far sound uh, super cool, especially which I really like the jam that y'all stuck uh, on the end of A Boat to Drown In, that kind of extended instrumental jam on the tail end of that i thought was oh, cool uh, yeah yeah and uh, all in all again it, it sounds great so i'm definitely psyched on hearing the rest of the record awesome man thank you so much all right everybody thanks for tuning in and thanks to hayden for rapping digging these new songs off atlas venom and psyched to crank that shit when it's out definitely hyped on them going out there to machines with magnets as i was a fan of the daughter's record that i mentioned during this interview so definitely looking forward to it We'll catch y'all on the next one. Crash, bang, boom.